Good morning once again, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 28 through 37 this morning. This is Daniel chapter 4, part 2, as we look uh, to see what God has us for us has for us in his word this morning. Just want to uh, give one more plug for tonight. Uh, Les Peters coming at 6 o'clock. I just want to say I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't invite you back to the church tonight at 6 o'clock if it wasn't going to be worth your time. Um, I know if you don't have a connection necessarily to Guatemala or the ministry there, you might just think, oh, I don't know if that's for me. But I just want to, if you're able to come, I just want to, not guilt, not guilt you, but just encourage you to come. It's a really is a, a privilege to have this, this person here. The ministry that he started, Impact Ministries in Guatemala, is unbelievable. And uh, our team uh, this last uh, summer got to go and visit and be a part of it and see the fruit of it. And our, uh, our team that went, along with our nation's team, is going to be having dinner beforehand with him at 5 o'clock, and then he's going to be sharing at six just for anyone uh, to hear what God is doing and uh, be encouraged. Uh, and he, yeah, I, I've never heard someone speak that is A, so encouraging, and B, has so many unbelievable stories to tell of God's faithfulness. And so uh, you will, if you come tonight, you will leave uh, encouraged and uh, excited about what the Lord is doing. So just that's my last plug for that tonight. I hope to see you here at six o'clock. Hopefully you've made it to Daniel chapter 4. You're going to want it in front of you, uh, so hopefully you've uh, turned or tapped there on your phone. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, God, um, you are a firm foundation. Christ is the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Uh, Lord, we have an enemy who... uh, is constantly trying to uh, convince us that sinking sand is actually pretty good real estate, and um, and we have hearts that are prone to believe that, Lord. So I just pray uh, this morning as we look to your word and we see this incredible transformation of Nebuchadnezzar, Lord, that you would just encourage our hearts more and more uh, in the transformation of our minds. Just be single-minded in following you, God. That's what I want. Uh, you know how far short I fall of that every day. That's my desire, Lord, and give me that desire more and more. Give us as a church, even though we want that, Lord, help us to want it more, single-mindedly following you, Lord. So just pray that you would just give us uh, an encouraging time in your word here. Thank you for the gift of the second half of Daniel chapter 4, and uh, we pray that it would convict and encourage us and just guard me, give me humility as I uh, undergo this great task uh, of preaching your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is uh, part two, like I said, of our time in Daniel chapter four. Last week, as I opened, I said that this story is actually the story of Nebuchadnezzar writing his testimony. It's the story of how he got saved. Last week, if you missed it, I I encourage you to go back and read the first part of Daniel chapter four. Last week, we saw that God in his grace gave Nebuchadnezzar a warning sign in the form of a dream. Sometimes God, in his grace, gives us a warning sign as well. We're going to see this morning that Nebuchadnezzar, I'm also excited to kind of get away from, Neb- from Daniel chapter 4, and I'm saying the word Nebuchadnezzar over and over and over again. I'm trying to, to shorten it, but anyways, I just that's a thought that just popped into my head that I should have probably just kept silent, but anyways, we're going to see this morning that Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen to that warning sign. He could have spared himself a lot of pain if he did, but he didn't, but God in his grace still didn't give up 
on him. This time, we see Nebuchadnezzar is radically transformed. He undergoes this utter humiliation, which leads to an utter transformation. By the end of the chapter, one of the more unlikely events in Scripture takes place. A pagan king in Nebuchadnezzar gives glory to the one true God. It's an incredible story, Daniel chapter 4. But before we get into all of that, we need to spend a little bit more time. We touched on this briefly last week, but we need to spend a little more time answering this question and talking about who is this Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter 4. Now, what I said last week was that I believe that Nebuchadnezzar of Daniel chapter 4 is a different Nebuchadnezzar than Daniel chapters 1 through 3. What I didn't tell you is that last week I wrote my entire sermon assuming it was the same Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapters 1 through 3 and then when I came across some evidence that it was a different guy I thought good grief now I got to go back and rewrite a large chunks of my sermon which I did um, so that sometimes that happens where you go in along one train of thought and you realize er, gotta do a little backup and re uh, go a different way so I still don't know 100% if this is the same Nebuchadnezzar or a different Nebuchadnezzar, but I think there's good enough reason to think that it might be a different guy. There's a, a few, few things. Basically, what I'm going to try to do is make this as confusing as possible for us. So Nebuchadnezzar, as I, in Daniel chapters 1 through 3, is actually Nebuchadnezzar 2. How's that? For confusing. So our first Nebuchadnezzar that we encounter in Scripture is technically he was Nebuchadnezzar the second. And we know that there was another king that came after Nebuchadnezzar II who usurped, usurped, how do you, that's one of those words you just read but you don't know how to say it, usurped, who took over the throne, and uh, I think usurped is right, is that right? Okay, thank you, I'm getting some confirmation there. He usurped the throne, he took over the throne. Nebuchadnezzar III, his name was Nabodnus, but there's good evidence that he called himself Nebuchadnezzar III in order to gain credibility from the people after he took over the throne with the Babylonian people. So there's a couple reasons I lean toward it being this new guy named Nabodnus or Nebuchadnezzar III. First of all, it doesn't say anything about I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, had another dream. There's no reference mentioned to the dream that happened before. So there's kind of, it seems like if it was the same guy, he would have maybe said I had another dream. Maybe not. That's not enough reason in and of itself. The second thing, though, it's a little bit curious to me, is uh, just like the, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, what is, the first thing he does after he has the dream is he calls in all of his wise men, right? And... Uh, well, it seems like he should have learned his lesson that Daniel was really his dream guy, right? It seems like if it was the same guy, he would have called Daniel in first. But just like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, he calls all the wise men in first and then Daniel. Now, maybe he just didn't learn his lesson, so that's not necessarily a good enough reason to think that either. But there's a third reason where I th this is what kind of makes me think it's at least really interesting. So one of the things that... Uh, uh, Bible critics used to say that Daniel chapter 4, this story couldn't have ha actually happened, was the fact that there's no record of Nebuchadnezzar 2, the Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapters 1 through 3. I hope you're following along with me. There's no record of, of Nebuchadnezzar 2 ever leaving his throne for any period of time. We're going to see in this story, Nebuchadnezzar leaves his throne for, it says, seven periods of time. So people would say, well, it, it seems like somebody would have written that down. It seems like that if that had actually happened. Which, maybe they didn't write it down because it didn't look very good for the king, right? If, if you uh, leave your throne and like turn in, like, or like cast in to live with the wild animals, that doesn't look good for you, so they maybe wouldn't write that down. However, 
there is a record of, I like to have an alarm go off when I'm really about to make my best points. There is a record of, I didn't mean to say, shame anybody for having an alarm go off on their phone. My first thought was, oh no, I think that was my phone, but I don't think it was. There is a record of this Nabodinus guy, Nebuchadnezzar III, leaving his throne for guess how many years? Seven years. Just disappeared, MIA. And then he comes back, which is pretty cool, right? So that doesn't necessarily, it's not like slam dunk, yes, it's a different guy. However, I think there's a good enough evidence to say it very well could have been him. And there's even maybe historical evidence to back up what we already see in Scripture, which is very cool. So all that to say, when you, whoever gets to heaven first among us, if you could, you can just go up to, if you run into a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, just be like, are you, I know you probably get this all the time, are you Nebuchadnezzar 2 or are you an Abodinus guy who does Nebuchadnezzar 3? And then they'll probably sort it out and then you'll have an answer to the question. But I think it's a different guy. That's my, Dave, Pastor David and I were talking about it this week saying, well, how'd you even come up with that? So that was my thought, thought process. Uh, it doesn't really make a huge difference in the way that we understand the story, but it's uh, good to learn these things nonetheless. So the point is, king of Babylon, a Nebuchadnezzar, it's a warning in a dream that he's about to get chopped down like a mighty tree and then disappear for seven periods of time if he doesn't repent of his pride. And so now here we are in the second half of Daniel chapter 4 and we are going to see this incredible transformation story. And really what we see as I read this, as I uh, meditated on this story this week, what really the verse that came to my mind was Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What we see in this story is really a renewed mind. Nebuchadnezzar used to think certain things. He has an encounter with the living God, and he comes away. His entire mind has been transformed. It's been made new. And so we're going to see some evidences of what it looks like to have a transformed mind. But we've got to look at, read the story first. So look at it, starting in verse 28, I'm going to read this really long section, so stay with me. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, stop right there. Hopefully I didn't lose you in that long section of Scripture. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. All this meaning the stuff that, was, uh, that uh, had been prophesied in the dream that he had the, uh, earlier. So all of this, all the stuff that he dreamed about ended up coming upon him. How? Look at verse 29. At the end of, catch this, 12 months, so a full year later, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. So the question is, now as readers, we need to be asking, okay, did he humble himself? Has he changed at all after he was given that warning? Was he humbled? Let's look for evidence to see whether or not he's humbled 12 months later. Verse 30, the king answered and said, is, this not, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Super humble, right? To totally tell he's learned his lesson. Not. It's not the case. We talked about this. It's a little bit scary what we talked about last week. But it's true. God sometimes gives us these warning signs. Sometimes we can think just because God hasn't disciplined us yet, it means that his discipline won't Come, but that is not the case at all. We see here, God's given Nebuchadnezzar a full year to repent and turn to God. And yet, as we see here, he has not listened to the warning at all, and so he's about to suffer 
the consequences. Look at all of a sudden, so 12 months later, he hasn't changed anything and things are still going amazing. He's looking out on Babylon saying, isn't this my great palace that I built with my hands for the glory of my majesty? And look how swiftly and quickly God's discipline comes on him. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, he's literally saying these things. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled. He didn't have 12 months that time. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. That's an interesting picture there. I wish we could see a picture of what that looked like. A couple things. First of all, that's crazy, right? The highest king, the most powerful man in the world, and then boom, God speaks a word to him, and he is humbled to the lowest low that you can possibly uh, have in this life, eating grass and growing crazy long hair and fingernails. Some of you outdoorsy type people are like, ah, I wouldn't mind, you know, seven periods of time in the wilderness. That sounds kind of nice, actually. Go, go and hunt some elk or whatever. This is, so this is not like a nature trip that he's having, okay? This is, this is a punishment. And his, his reason has left him. His mind has kind of left him. He's gone crazy. It's a severe punishment. And yet, even it's in its severity, you can still see the grace of God peeking through, right? Like when you have just like a crack in your blinds and like there's a sunbeam just like going, shining straight through. You see the grace of God shining through in this passage. Look at the second half of verse 32. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you. So first of all, he's not killed. It's not over for him. God doesn't just like end his life right there. He humiliates him but he doesn't kill him, number one. And then number two, why, what's the purpose of those seven periods of time that this would happen? Look, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The discipline was so that he would know that God was God and he was not. So even in this discipline, we see that the purpose was a transformed mind, that he would know something, right, that he didn't know before. Sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom in your life to see something that you couldn't see otherwise. One of the things that gives me the most joy in ministry right now is once a month I have the privilege to go uh, and do a, lead a Bible study at a place called the Valley of Grace, which is a three-month Christ-centered addiction recovery center that just opened uh, north of here. On it's, You take 19 until it's not 19 anymore, and then you keep going when it's a county road, and it's an old Amish farm uh, right there, and it's a three-month addiction recovery program that people actually come from all over the country uh, to go to. Uh, men come from all over, and uh, 
uh, it is an incredible blessing for me to be a part of this ministry, even in this small way. Every time I'm there, I'm just blown away. What we do is I just pick a passage that we're going to study, usually from the Gospels. I print it out and hand it out, and we just uh, read it and make observations and talk about what we see. And I'm just so amazed that I see just a hunger from these guys to want to know what God's Word tells them because their instincts and their desires and the things that they've wanted in life have led them uh, to, uh, down a really dark path and they've led them to hit rock bottom. And when you're at rock bottom, there's a hunger. To say, okay, what does God's word actually say? I need truth, like a cup of cold water on a hot day. Like, I need God's truth in my soul. And I'm just amazed by their hunger for the word and the ways that I see them grow even from month to month as I go uh, once a month. A couple weeks ago, I was able to attend a graduation of one of the guys, and he shared that even as hard as it was to have to go to the program, he was so thankful that the Lord brought him to that place in his life, and his life was totally changed. Not because he had new strategies to fight drug addiction, but because he now knew Jesus. It's not an easy program. In many ways, even just having to attend the program is a rock-bottom moment. But God's using that to show them who he is. And when he does that, I know that none of these guys would trade that for anything. Some of you guys have a story uh, the same way. You came to know the Lord the same way of like, man, I, I was living one way, and it brought me to absolute rock bottom and thank praise God that I got there (laughs) because if God didn't bring me to that place of rock bottom there's no way I ever would have had ears to hear the truth and so that even rock bottom church is God's grace amen even though Nebuchadnezzar is at rock bottom that is still God's grace It's crazy to think about it, right? This is better for him, isn't it? It's better for the most powerful man in the most beautiful palace in the greatest kingdom in the world to live in the wilderness for seven years and come to know the truth about who God is than to live out the rest of his life in his delusion thinking that he's the most powerful being in the world, right? It's better for him. Jesus says that too. He says in Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, right? What's the answer? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the answer? Nothing. Here's the truth, church. It is better to lose everything and have Jesus than it is to have everything and not have Jesus say that again? It is better to lose everything and have Jesus than to have everything and not have Jesus. Now here's the hard part, church, because I know in my heart I'm feeling this way. Well, yeah, that's true, but why does it have to be either or? Why can't it be both, right? Why can't I have everything I want and have Jesus, Quote an old commercial about hard and soft taco shells. Some of you will get this reference. Poor K, no los dos. Why not both? Why not the two? Why not the world and Jesus? Simply put, it just doesn't work that way. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must, what, deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. 
Following Jesus means dying to yourself. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the blessings of life that he gives us. It doesn't mean if you ever feel like happy or joyful that you're not really following Jesus. That's, that's not what we're saying at all. But it does mean that as a follower of Jesus, your ultimate joy, your greatest pleasure, your highest satisfaction comes from Christ himself. It's about priority. No matter where you're at in life, you're called to seek first the kingdom of God. So in seasons of blessing, we're able to say, praise God. And in seasons of trial, we're able to say, praise God. And if persecution comes, we're able to say, praise God. And if we hit that rock bottom moment because of our sin and because we didn't listen to the warning signs that God gave us over and over again, even in that rock bottom, when we see that ray come through, that is God's grace, we say, praise God. God, because we know that God works all things for his glory and our ultimate good, which might not be pleasant at the time, right, in the moment. God punishes Nebuchadnezzar and he faces this ultimate humiliation, but even in that humiliation, we see God's grace shining through. This is hard, I think, in so many ways. It's hard to think about for ourselves that if I'm, <laughs> I don't want to face a moment like that, right? It's hard to think about for our kids, right? You never want to see your kids face a rock-bottom moment in their life. You want to protect them from those things. So we don't know how God's sovereignty works, but we do know that he is sovereign. We do know that he's in control. And even in rock-bottom moments, God's grace can shine through And if any of you have been on the other side of a rock-bottom moment like that, I know you're saying yes and amen and thank you, God, for that rock-bottom because there's no way I would be where I am now. I would still be blind to my sin and having no ears to hear his voice. But God in his grace redeemed me. He redeemed all of us from the pit. Amen? On the other side of that rock-bottom, then, is a transformation of our minds. That's what we see in Nebuchadnezzar. So look with me at verse 34. We're going to see what this transformation looks like in his life. Verse 34. At the end of the days, meaning the end of the days of his humiliation, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. But think, hear what he did then with that greatness. The transformation that took place. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol, not myself anymore, and honor not myself, but the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. How does Nebuchadnezzar know that? (laughs) Because Nebuchadnezzar walked in pride, and God humbled him. We see a radical transformation here. 
really in three ways. The first transformation we see is from his self-sufficiency to understanding God's sufficiency, from self-sufficiency to God's sufficiency. We talked about the different kinds of pride last week that can creep into our lives, right? One of those different kinds of pride is the pride of accomplishment, looking around and being like, yep, I'm pretty amazing. Look at all these great things that I've done. And we can all slip into that easily. That's exactly the pride that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's life here. That's almost literally what he was saying as God disciplined him. Is this not great Babylon, which I have built? It's like beating his chest. Look at me. Look at the transformation then in verse 35. Talking about God. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 37. All his works are right. All his ways are just those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is honestly can be one of the hardest transformations to make. I mean, you look at what it took for Nebuchadnezzar. He was given a pretty explicit dream, a pretty explicit, uh, ex- explicit uh, interpretation of that dream, and then 12 months to come to his senses, and he still didn't. It can be really hard for us to overcome this pride as well, especially in, a cult- in the culture that we live in, which is a culture obsessed with and props up the, quote, like self-made man or woman, right? Culture that we live in that says the ones who truly made it are the ones who did it all on their own without any help. Like that's the highest, I- the highest ideal that we can have in our culture, isn't it? Like you, you made it, you rose above everything and you did it all on your own. Christianity flips this mindset on its head. That idea, that mindset is incompatible with our faith. In Christ, you go from a life that is all about you to a life that is all about him. You go from being propped up, a life that's propped up by your own works to a life that fully trusts in God's work on your behalf. From a life that is dependent on your self-sufficiency to a life that is dependent on God's sufficiency. And that's really hard, especially for like a super successful person like Nebuchadnezzar. It's hard for a really successful person to get to that place away from self-sufficiency and to fully rely on God. We see that uh, illustrated for us in the story of the rich young ruler who came and asked Jesus how to get to heaven. Eventually, Jesus told him he needed to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor. Why did he say that? Because he perceived in his heart that this rich young man had a self-sufficiency problem and that this young man couldn't bear to part with that feeling of being in control of his life. So he walked away. Like we said earlier, it is so easy to fall into the temptation of wanting Jesus and the world. Like maybe I can combine all these things into one, but Jesus says, no. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. But if you're seeking the world first or if you're seeking the world at the same time as Jesus, you will never really find the gospel. If you're trying to be self-sufficient, you won't be ever fully relying on God. That's the first transformation that we see here. Nebuchadnezzar goes from looking around and saying, how amazing are my works, to pointing to God and say, how amazing are you? 
That should have happened to every single one of us that did happen to you in some capacity when you followed Jesus, right? Yet we know in our hearts that we're not fully there yet. We'll never fully get there until uh, he returns or calls me home. And so we pray, just like, God, help me to see those areas in my heart where I am being self-sufficient, where I'm relying more on myself than you. And just root those things out, God. Even if our culture says that's a a good thing, God, I don't want that. I don't want to rely on myself. I want to rely on you. The transformation of your mind happens when you realize you don't have to rely on yourself anymore. We're called to rely on God. Here's the second transformation we see in this passage. It's from, uh, from counting on the earthly kingdom to the heavenly kingdom. And this really goes hand in hand with the first transformation, but it's more on a kind of thinking, more on a societal level than an individual level. Daniel chapter 4 should be a huge comfort to us Christians because it reminds us just how much more powerful our God is than even the most powerful dictator in the world, right? I mean, think about, again, the humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar's walking around his palace, musing about how amazing he is, and God literally, bam, takes it away in an instant. It's just gone, And then look at how his mindset changed after that happened. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Was Nebuchadnezzar saying that about a kingdom other than his own before he had his eyes opened to who God was? No. Nebuchadnezzar now following God, was able to say his dominion is everlasting and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Church, I know you know this, but there is only one kingdom that lasts forever, and it ain't America, is it? Or China, or any other kingdom on earth. It is the heavenly kingdom of which Jesus is currently sitting on the throne. My fear is, we kind of talked about this in our current issues class this morning a little bit. My fear is that we can fall into this temptation to think that God needs our country to be a certain way in order for his plans to be accomplished. That's not the case. Even though it's easy to say, oh, I know that God's on the throne. I think if we spend hours and hours a day obsessing over which politician said what or, or did what stupid thing that day, I think it shows, again, even if we can mentally say, yeah, God's on the throne, by the things that we spend our time on and our thinking on, it can show that we're actually putting a lot more stock into this earthly kingdom than our heavenly home. I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't care about politics, but I think we need to keep everything in its proper perspective, don't we, church? Jesus is on the throne. He's never sweated the results of an American election or any other election or any other trans, uh, transition of power. So what should I do then, Pastor Mike? Because I think, again, we can have this, this unsettled feeling when we look around in our world. It's like, what am I sp- supposed to do? And sometimes it feels like evil is winning. So what do we do? Well, you should do what Psalm 37 says. Let this uh, be a comfort to you this morning. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. You think that uh, people of Israel were fretting some about uh, Nebuchadnezzar and all that he was doing, living in exile. Their homeland didn't look like what their homeland anymore, and they couldn't, right? I mean, it was just, it was the, their world was crashing down in the Babylonian kingdom coming and taking over. That was it for everything that they had ever known about their life. And from their perspective, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. But did God have a different view of things? That's a, that was the question. Did God have a different view of what was going on? He did. Did God know that he was going to utterly humiliate Nebuchadnezzar and yet do so in his grace so Nebuchadnezzar on the other side of that would then praise and honor God among all the nations, something that Israel itself were not doing at that time? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar would actually do a better job carrying out the, God's plan than Israel was. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Why not? Because God can just, in a moment, just that's it, right? So we don't have to worry about these things, church. Maybe that's too simple, but I don't think so. I really think we can just do what the Bible says. Fret not because of evildoers and just trust in the Lord and do good. Yeah, church, we're blessed to live in America, but our true home isn't here. And so I just say this as an encouragement. This is not new to our current issues class. They're probably getting a little tired of, me hear, of hearing me say this, but uh, if you're spending too much time worrying about these things, right, worrying about all the stuff going on in the world or in our country, let me just, in, let me just say, you can just have the freedom to just turn off the TV or exit out of Facebook or, or Twitter or whatever and, and just read your Bible and and if you want to see how God's really building his kingdom, like come to a one on Wednesday night and be a listener and, and hear our kids memorizing God's word because that's how he's building his kingdom is through the transformation of children's hearts. Amen? That's what really matters. So as we have these transformations in our mind, as we follow Jesus, we need to be rid of the sinking sand of thinking that I am sufficient to build the kingdom on my own. And we also need to be rid of the sinking sand to think that God somehow needs like rulers and leaders to behave exactly how we think that he needs them to or his plans will be ruined. God is just doing what he wants to do. Amen? All the time. Right now he's doing what he wants to do. He's going to keep doing what he wants to do. And then after that, guess what? He's going to keep, keep doing what he wants to do. We don't have to worry about these things. So what do we do? What's the final transformation? The final transformation is our role in this world, which is from going from spreading my glory to spreading God's glory. Before you know Jesus, man, that's a hard place to be and to think that in order to make my mark in the world, like I need other people to know how great I am. And again, is this not just something that Christianity just flips on its head? Say, it's not my job for the world to know how great I am. In fact, if the world can know how little I am, that's going to help them better know how big God is. So I'm going to make myself even less and hold the treasure in a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I must decrease and he must Increase. Amen. That's our job, church. Look what Nebuchadnezzar did. 
Remember the very beginning of, of Daniel chapter 4, we have this introduction that really takes place at the end of the story. Look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. This is the most unlikely source imaginable for the greatness of God to go out to all peoples, nations, and languages. And yet there is God doing what man would have said could never be done. And you know what, church? We're called to do the same. We're called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ like Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages. So through the gospel, not only do you have a new heart, but you have a new mission. I hope you're getting tired of me hearing, of hearing this. Because <laughs> that means we're getting it, right? We have a new mission to make Christ known <laughs> from our neighbors to the nations. We're all called to play a part in that work. When you have a transformed mind, you have a transformed purpose. He's given each of you a purpose to make disciples. I think there's a couple spheres that he calls us to do that in. First, just in the, in the sphere of influence that he's given you, right? He wants you to make disciples in your families. He wants you to make disciples through the opportunities he gives you in your jobs. He wants you to make disciples of your neighbors, like the people who literally live next door to you. He wants you to make disciples of your neighbors. He wants you to make disciples through your service and ministry within the context of the local church. Wherever you are, with whatever gifts he's given you, he wants you to make disciples. But the second way he wants us to make disciples is among the nations. So not only just with those who are close to us. That would work if every person all over the world had somebody close to them who knew Jesus, but that's not the case. There are still billions of people all over the world with a B who don't have anyone who knows the gospel close to them, and that's why we're called to make Christ known not only here, but to those who have never had the chance to hear. While we're not all called to go to the nations, we're all called to play a part, right? You can pray for missionaries. You can take a missionary card that we have. You can support missionaries. You can pray for the unreached. We still have that bowl full of cards uh, out as you walk out of our church here that has all the cards of unreached people groups. You can grab one, pray for them on your way out the door, and then throw it away. And then next Sunday, come in and grab another one and pray for them. I know that some of you do that uh, faithfully. You can uh, give, I think I said. You can just be intentional with people who are from all over the world who live in our area. You can tell other people about the fact that there's people who have never heard the, the good news who live all over the world. There's, all, there's something that every single one of us can do, and it's really important. It's amazing. God used Nebuchadnezzar to share the truth of who God was to all peoples, nations, and languages. How much more does he want to use the church to do the same. When you're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes you, changes what you rely on, it changes the ultimate allegiance of your kingdom that you serve, and it gives you a new purpose. And so may we, church, be a church that lives out that purpose because of the transformation that is constantly being worked out in our hearts. And I know that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Amen?
Amen. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. What an incredible story. What an unlikely source of missions. <laughs> Lord, I pray for those of us in this room, Lord, that our minds would be continually renewed, that we wouldn't be conformed to this age that we live in and the values that are said that are important, that we wouldn't be conformed to the culture, the society at large, but we would be transformed by a right understanding of the gospel and the way that that renews our minds and our hearts, Lord. So may we not be filled with pride like Nebuchadnezzar. May we not look around and just uh, think how, how great we're doing at this compared to other people, Lord. Help us to see the blind spots. Help us to see the plank in our eye, before, our own eye, before we care about the speck in our brother's eye, before we look to that. And Lord, may we um, just be transformed in our purpose to make disciples. So Lord, I pray for each person in this room right now that they would have open eyes this week, God, maybe this day, maybe tomorrow, sometime this week, that they see somebody that comes across their path. They can begin that process, maybe just striking up a conversation, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. May we, be rec may we recognize those things, Lord. May we be transformed. We thank you that you don't give up on us, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.